Welcome to Scraps, a podcast where we aspire to inform the listeners of stories of scientific brilliance and innovation that spawn many of today's products in science. And thanks to all of you listeners who support us by subscribing and listening. If you already haven't done it, please subscribe and leave a review. These are so important to us. Thank you for joining us. This is Arun Sridhar, a scientist by trade, former head of discovery at GSK Bioelectronics R&D and Gilvani Bioelectronics, and the host of this podcast, along with the lovely Jojo Platt. I like to call her the voice of simplicity. Our guest today is a true innovator. His association with the products that have changed patient care is staggering. I personally know of only two other scientists who have discovered a stellar array of medicines like our guests. The first person is Sir James Black, who was involved in the discovery and development of two critical medications, Tagamet for stomach ulcers and Perplanolol for chest pain. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1988 for his efforts. The second person was Sir David Jack. Sir David Jack developed Zantac, a widely prescribed anti-ulcer medication, and many inhaled medications like salbutamol and two steroid inhalation medications that revolutionized treatments for patients with asthma. Companies like GSK and AstraZeneca still carry the legacy of these inhaled medications to this day. Other medications that Sir David was involved with was sumatriptan for migraines and zofran for nausea. Our guest today follows in that lineage of highly impactful scientists. Hearing stories about these two British pharmacologists and our guest today inspired me to take the path that I'm currently on. I see myself as one who learned from these role models and their approach that they took and I still use every day and try to bring it to the area of neuromodulation. Let me list out a few drugs that our guest today was involved with. The first one is dobutamine that is used to treat cardiogenic shock and severe heart failure. If any of you have worked in the ICU or have known people who have worked in the ICU, dobutamine is a very critical drug that is used in the, in the intensive care unit. The second one is ropalinolol that has been used extensively for the treatment of Parkinson's and restless leg syndrome. Eprosartan, which is the current standard of care for hypertension. And the most important of all, Carvedilol. He holds the patent for the molecule for the treatment of heart failure. To the layperson, Carvedilol single-handedly changed the face of care for the treatment of heart failure. If you know of a person who has heart failure or has had heart failure, they would have been on Carvedilol or Coreg, as it was called, by Smith Klein Beecham back then. I will not steal a thunder, but I think Carvedilol, as far as I know, is the only drug that was ever stopped in its pivotal trial by the Data Safety Monitoring Board because it was considered unethical 
to withhold a drug from the patients as it was so efficacious in the treatment group versus the placebo. If this stellar array of medications that has changed patient lives are not enough, he has an impressive track record of serving as the head of R&D for Wyeth before it was acquired by Pfizer. He's a much recognized face in drug discovery and is here to share with us some of his personal stories of how these drugs were discovered, his journey and how it shaped him, his worldview and his leadership style over the years. Without further ado, welcome to the show, Dr. Robert Ruffalo Jr. Well, Aaron and Jojo, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for coming. So most of our our um, segments so far have focused heavily on technology. Um, your your work in the drug development world is um, pretty spectacular. But I'm going to ask a sort of a sideways question first. How on earth do you come up with the names for these drugs? Oh, we we actually um, have a little bit of flexibility for the generic name. Uh, we try and make it sound something like the um the uh the the official drug name uh the chemical name and that's difficult to do we also try and have that be relatively complicated um and there's a reason for that and i'm not really proud of the reason but there is a reason uh so the generic name that we make like carvedilol um we want to be relatively complicated uh and i'll tell you why in a second uh the brand name we want to be simple coreg in the U.S., uh, Dilatrend in other parts of the world. Um, uh, we want the 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 brand name to be simple because doctors will remember that. It's tougher to remember a complicated sounding name. Uh, but in the end, the FDA has to approve it, um, and they have certain criteria. It can't sound too much like any other drug, um, uh, where it could be confused in the pharmacy or in a doctor's. Uh, mind and lead to a serious issue. So we in the pharmaceutical industry start the name. Uh, we bat it around. It takes about two, two and a half years to come up with a name um, because it ultimately has to go back and forth with regulatory agencies and trademarks and and and, and making sure um, that, that other drugs are, are not confused by it. So it's a long, complicated process. I'm glad there's a, a reason and a purpose behind it, because if it was anything like my process, that involves a bottle of tequila and a whiteboard. <laughs> uh, that we use, too, um, <laughs> in our process. So Arun tells me that in uh, some of your, your student days, you have a reputation for being a little bit of a prankster and that your your advisor actually appreciated that from you. Do you have any uh, any good stories of burning down the college? Um, well, uh, pranks, there, there were some, some, um, good stories. Some of them I can't tell, um, uh, in a podcast. Um, but yeah, we, um, we're not regulated, Bob, just so you know, (laughs) (laughs) No, but I still have friends and family, um, who, who don't know that side of me. Um, but, um, we, we were, um, ruthless and brutal with the faculty. Um, we had a great relationship. Uh, when I was in graduate school, and I also did my undergraduate in pharmacy at the same place at, at the Ohio State University. Um, so I was in that department for 10 years. And we had a great relationship with the professors, and and we really gave them a rough time. Um, and we had nicknames for uh, many of them. And, uh, and, 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 and 
they put up with it and they there was a mutual respect. It was a great department. I really loved my time as an undergraduate in pharmacy school. And I worked in the laboratory uh, for my uh, advisor, who also then became my PhD advisor, uh, Dr. Popat Patil. And um, and so I was there, as I said, 10 years. We had great relationship and we would we would have a lot of fun with each other. Yeah, and I think when you mentioned Dr. Patil, I think I, I just have to say that uh, he is probably one of the most kindest men I've ever met. And by the time I started, he was close to retiring and was going to become the professor emeritus the next year. And he was the only person that I saw in the whole college who would walk in at 7 a.m. in the morning and still stop by every time because my laboratory was right outside the mailroom. And he would just stop by thrice a day, once in the morning, once when he came down at lunchtime and once before he left at around 4.35 in the evening to always check on me to see what experiment that I was doing. If I was sitting down and reading, he would always sit down with me for like two or five minutes or so just to ask me what I was doing. And that's how I actually came to know about you, Bob, because he actually used to tell me stories about some of the experiments that they used to do. And I think for the people just who are listening, um, I think one of the reasons why I mentioned Sir James Black and David Jack and and those uh, type of uh, eminent scientists was because some of the tools that that Dr. Patel would actually describe to me were all the very same tools that was ultimately used to discover the medications that that had ultimately, like for example, some of the intestinal preparations that that Dr. Patel used to use. So, do you want to tell us a bit more about? Now, I know it takes you back to the the good old days of your graduate school, but for just for people to understand how a very simple preparation like the intestinal preparations that Dr. Patel used and what you used during your PhD was was fundamental to understanding of what receptor pharmacology was uh, for, around the time that you started your, you did your PhD. Sure. So uh, first off, though, those behaviors of Dr. Patil, um, those were the same behaviors 40 years ago um, or longer, uh, sadly for me. Uh, when I was uh, an undergraduate and graduate student in in his laboratory, uh, but the techniques at the time uh, weren't very sophisticated. We couldn't label receptors. We didn't have radio ligands to bind to receptors. We didn't even really know what receptors were. We we, we were pretty certain they were proteins, but we had no idea of the structure, um, uh, the conformations that they that they adopt. Uh, the signaling was completely unknown. Uh, first to come in was beta receptor and cyclic AMP, but we didn't really know very much. And so the systems that we used then uh, were considered the state of the art, where we would take an organ like a blood vessel, for example, and and put it in an isolated organ chamber, and the blood vessel would contract if we cut it in the right direction in the spiral cut. And that's how we measured responses to drug receptor agonists, and we would study antagonists as well in those systems, and they were the norm. Um, They still work. And uh, many people still use those systems, but now we can label receptors. Uh, we do know the signal transduction processes. But if you really want to know the effect of a drug, the response elicited by the drug, you need still some sort of a functional response. I mean, uh, it's nice to measure biochemical assays, and you've got to do that. Um, and it's nice to measure all of the signal transduction processes, the phosphorylation of, um, of proteins in the signal transduction process. But ultimately, you also need a response. And the response can be a biochemical readout, 
but in many cases, it's still a, the function of an organ. And so uh, I, I never really took part in that debate that used to go on, well, I'm an in vivo person, I'm an in vitro person. Or then the subdivision of that debate, I'm an in vitro isolated organ person, I'm an in vitro biochemical person. I always thought those were silly debates, and they did happen. Um, and they would, they would be sometimes pretty heated debates. I would use, I always felt I would use whatever technique I could get my hands on. And ultimately, um, I, I worked from the gene level of the gene up through the intact animal and ultimately into patients. So um, any, any technology, any methodology um, uh, was okay for me. And I was really not, not very um, um, selective about what techniques I'd use. I'd use anything that I needed. Yeah, and, and everything just fits part of the puzzle in, in the, on the route to understanding the whole system, which is the way I say it. And again, coming back to that, I think that is the, the fundamentals of how physiology and pharmacology was ever done back in the day. So I think that's why I always worry sometimes when people call themselves as genomics person or a molecular pharmacologist or other definitions. I think ultimately you, one could discover a gene, one could discover a protein. If nobody knows anything about what it ultimately does in terms of modulating function, it doesn't matter what one has discovered because ultimately that's what means or that's what, what it means to, to make something that would modulate the system to affect diseases or disease conditions, so to speak. Um, that's, that's, that's right. And then, and then because I went into the pharmaceutical industry, I spent my whole career there, uh, almost 50 years. Um, uh, I didn't have the luxury of focusing on a technique or on a specific field. Uh, I couldn't be just a molecular biologist or a pharma, just a pharmacologist or just a medicinal chemist or just a, um, a, a genomics person. Again, to make a drug, you really go from the gene to the human and everything in between. And so I, uh, when you work in the pharmaceutical industry, it really does require great breadth of experience and, and technology. It sounds like you had a, a full, a full use of a wide range of tools. And if you're, if your Phillips head screwdriver is missing, you just adjust and use a flathead of a different size. So one of the things that I know about your career is that you're one of the first to really have um, installed and, and achieve metrics in R&D. How does that work in a, in a pharmacology setting? Yeah. Well, um, you know, when um, for a long time, I, I always thought we could bring some additional rigor to uh, research and in particular research and development. And, uh, but that's a hard thing to do. Uh, scientists value their freedom, their academic freedom. And, and you've got to find a way to do it without stepping on that. Um, scientists like the freedom and, and uh, almost by definition, the, the, the people that go into science, they're very smart, they're brilliant, they're geniuses, um, but they're not good at other things, such as the fact that money matters. We have only a certain amount that we can spend and when we run out, it's gone. And that that's, um, I, was one of the biggest shocks when I went to the pharmaceutical industry. A lot of scientists always thought there was more money. And, um, and uh, just go to the CEO. The CEO will give you more money. It's not like that. When I was at Wyeth, I was president of research and development. And the CEO gave me uh, three plus billion dollars a year. He gave the commercial 
head, the head of the commercial business, which is the other half, a little bit, just about that much, a little bit more. And that was it. He did, the CEO didn't have any money. He gave it all to us. In fact, on occasion, the CEO would come back to us when he needed um, for money to move to other divisions uh, if necessary, because he didn't have it. But people thought that the CEO sits on billions of dollars. The CEOs don't do that. They give it to the um, in, in the pharmaceutical industry, the mainly two areas that uh, dominate the, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, research and development and the commercial organization. And that's where almost all the money goes. So when my scientists would run out of money, I couldn't just do what they wanted to do. I had to take it from somebody else in my group. Um, and so, you know, part of the um, job is how you divide and shift those, in my case, the $3 billion each year. Uh, but we can never go back and get more. There's never more. It's hard to argue, though, that with a $3 billion budget, there isn't some wiggle room. I, I would imagine that a number that large actually almost encourages people to go, oh, it's okay. We've got $3 billion this year. Just, you know, it, it's there. So let me tell you, um, that's I hear that a lot. And I had a, a big disagreement with a president in another division when I was at Wyeth. I can tell that story if you like. But um, uh, in a in a... Any budget, uh, 60 to 70% of the budget is taken up by human cost, by personnel, their salaries, their benefits, their um, uh, bonuses, everything, and the equipment they use, all, all their technologies. So those are not easily movable. Um, those are sort of fixed cost, costs. So then when you, so when people say, well, you've got a $3 billion budget. Yeah, but I didn't actually have as much flexibility as you might think over that money be, uh, because a lot of it was fixed. Um, so I might have control over a, a billion dollars. And, um, and you know, people say, well, in a billion dollars, you ought to be able to find, uh, you know, a few hundred million. Not so easy because the clinical trials that we're doing consume a lot of money. Once you start them, you can't stop them. There are certain ethical reasons you couldn't stop a trial um, just to shift money to another. So when, when it comes down to it, you have relatively little flexibility. Um, uh, and so it's a tough thing to manage. But we, we always got through. And so to get back to your original question, since we always had more to do than we could afford, and that's the case in every pharmaceutical company, we have so much more to do than we have money for, um, I thought, I can't get more money, but maybe we could get more from the um, uh, the money that we have, out of the money that we have. And that's why I set up those um, metrics where all the different groups had to achieve certain objectives um, and we had to improve productivity to do that. So I set the metrics very high. And R&D people don't like metrics. They hate them. And they were very angry at me when I when I first put it in place. And, and, and just for the listeners, I think this the year that that you moved to Wyatt was kind of in the late 90s, early 2000s, correct? So way before, I mean, we are talking 20 years post the merger of SmithKline, Beecham and, yeah. and Glaxo to yeah. form GSK. But I think you were part of SB, uh, SmithKline, Beecham, and then you moved to Wyatt around that. So that was around 99, 2000, if I'm right. So 20 years ago, which where the metrics were still being... Um, the whole patent cliff was kind of being realized and people kind of, there was a wide, widespread panic around the time and across the industry. So I think you're trying to come there 
and change the system as to how to increase productivity with a with a fixed budget that you had. Exactly. So, so it was yeah. when I went to Wyeth in 2000 that I put these metrics in place, and they weren't very popular. Um, but it was a way to get more bang for the buck. And the scientists didn't like it, but they ultimately ended up liking it. And many companies say that they hold their scientists to metrics, but they don't really. Uh, if there's no teeth in the metrics um, where you can reward success exceeding the metrics, but you also have to be able to punish in a way not meeting the metrics. And we did it in a way that hadn't been done before. And the CEO gave me a, a proportion of the R&D bonus pool. And we linked our objectives to that bonus pool. So if we exceeded objectives, scientists would get more bonus. If we hit our objectives, they'd get the normal bonus. If we missed our objectives, they'd get less of a bonus. And bonuses were significant. So this got their attention, which is also why they didn't like it initially. And then I did something else that was important. Um, each group, discovery, preclinical development, clinical development, uh, uh, epidemiology, regulatory, and so on, they had their own top-line objectives that they had to miss. But I pooled all these objectives. And if one group missed their metrics, everybody suffered. All the other groups suffered. If discovery missed the metric, clinical would suffer. Likewise, if clinical missed the metric, governing, uh, discovery would suffer all across the board. That also got their attention because it created a, a paradigm that I didn't know that would happen. But we, like academia, have a silo mentality. That fell apart. It completely disappeared because people's compensation depended on every group being successful. And we saw behaviors in scientists and R&D that we never typically see. We saw scientists voluntarily moving money from one group to another to help the other group succeed so that everybody could be successful. And in the eight or so years that we ran that system, up until I retired, every year we exceeded bonuses. We exceeded objectives, rather, and enhanced bonuses. And in one year, we got the normal bonus. But to just give you an example of what these objectives were, when I got to Wyeth, the, RN, the discovery group was discovering three drugs a year, three drugs a year. I raised that to ultimately 15. 15 drugs had to be put into development every year. They said they couldn't do it. They whined and cried and screamed, and they hit it. They hit that objective every single year. We were starting one half of a, of a phase three clinical style, trial per year. I raised that to three. And we hit it every single year. And at that time, we were filing one new drug application every three years. And I raised that to two per year. And no company had ever done that before. Not even companies that were three times bigger than us, like Pfizer. Um, nobody had done that before on brand new drugs. Not line extensions, but brand new drugs. And we hit that target and we, once we hit it, we never missed it. So these were aggressive objectives, and the productivity outputs were up to 500-fold, 500%, uh, 500%, rather, fivefold. fold um, and, and so this system worked. It made R&D more productive, made them far more efficient. We were filing re uh, numbers of uh, INDs and NDAs, new drug applications, 
that had never been done before on a consistent basis. And, um, and so it worked out very well. And so the scientists who didn't like it in the beginning, uh, who complained about stomping on their um, uh, academic freedom and scientific freedom, ultimately liked it very much. And we didn't really compromise their scientific freedom at all. So I think one of the things that I like a bit more, uh, just driving up for another one more question here into the details there, was about the scorecard that created that you had created for each molecule, which is which depends on going back to the successes of the teams. The teams actually had to come to the decision-making board with information on what that molecule was, what it did in the body, what it did to the body, what the body did to the uh, to, to the molecule, what the effects was. Do you want to tell us a bit more about what those metrics were that they actually had to come with? Because I think. The reason why it's important is that, from my perspective, I think that is one of the early adoptions of a strategy that is now used across the industry in most companies. And uh, that was the first time that I had heard. And I think there were other few companies who were actually following suit in terms of having the report card for each molecule during the development. So tell us a bit more about that, Bob. Yes. So so that's that, Aaron, is probably what the most important thing you need to do when you set up a metrics-based system, because the big criticism of metric-based systems is that, well, scientists are smart people. They'll game the system and they'll put more drugs in development, but they will be worse drugs. They'll be bad. So we had to design a system that um, prevented that. And we did a number of things uh, and, and the scorecard was one. Uh, but we also, before I get to that, we had to set up a review system that included people outside of R&D so that we weren't grading our own report card or grading our own scorecard. Uh, people that had no vested interest in whether R&D got an enhanced bonus or a lower bonus. Um, and so I brought in people from the commercial organization on what we called development committee. This committee oversaw everything that was done with our with our drug molecules. And you couldn't cut corners because they knew everything that had to be done. Um, we also had other oversight groups to make sure that there were no shortcuts taken. And we had metrics even to make sure that no shortcuts were taken, such as our, our, our success rate had to go up. So if we were putting worse molecules in, our success rate would go down. Well, our success rate went up and we had that as a requirement. But then as a final step to make sure that no bad molecule at least no molecule that was known to have major issues would get into development. Um, we set up this scorecard. It had, I think it was 21 characteristics that a drug molecule had to have before you could even bring it into the room to that development council to ask for approval to develop that drug. It had certain potency in vitro, potency in vivo and animal models, oral activity, pharmacokinetics, certain toxicology uh, studies that had to be done. So there were hurdles put on uh, that drug before it could even brought in, be brought into the room so that we knew when somebody came into the room, we had the, the scorecard, we knew the results for every one of those 21 um, requirements um, that uh, we knew that corners weren't being cut. So we could just get down to the science and the medical need of this drug. And so that's what we did um, to make the metric system work to guarantee that we weren't putting worse drugs into development. 
And then the final thing that it wasn't a metric, but it's something I'm very proud of is if you were putting very bad drugs into development, your pipeline wouldn't be very good and it wouldn't be very innovative. But in my uh, last two years before I retired, I was very proud of the fact that we got acknowledged by um, the trade journal R&D Directions and by the, uh, by the Script, the Script organization in the United Kingdom for having the most innovative pipeline in the entire pharmaceutical industry. So that told us that we were putting better drugs, many more drugs in development, but they were actually better drugs as well. It wasn't one or the other. You didn't have to compromise quality to hit higher numbers. We were able to do both. And we had outside people uh, at, who were assessing this, not, not us, but outside people, outside R&D, and of course, outside the company in terms of R&D directions and script. So the system did work. We, we put many more drugs, our efficiency improved, our productivity improved. We ended up having many more drugs per dollar, per, per research dollar. And in the end, they were deemed by people who judged the pharmaceutical industry in those uh, 1976, 77, 78, excuse me, 2006, 77, 78, my last years before I retired is having the most innovative pipeline. So I was very proud of that. Yeah. And I think just, just want to go back to one comment that you made uh, about your graduate school, which is around the time that, that you said, in some cases, you didn't even know what those receptors were, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and your journey through the pharmaceutical industry to discovery and development uh, has also overlapped with this enormous burgeoning of understanding of what molecules are, what proteins are and how, and therefore, as a result, I think you have been in such a lucky position to work with some of the giants of, of understanding the, the processes in, in, the, in the human body or for that matter, in any mammalian system uh, in terms of these receptors, etc. So I think some of them that I know, uh, and it'll be awesome if you can actually recount maybe one or two episodes of that. At least the people that I know you've worked with in the past is Mike Brody uh, from Iowa, who is kind of the person who coined the term essential hypertension uh, for people in the cardiovascular area. Uh, Bob Lefkowitz, who got a Nobel Prize a few years ago uh, from Duke uh, for discovering or his pioneering work on G-protein couple receptors, etc. Uh, and there are many, many others that I haven't mentioned, Bob. So I think, how, how does it feel sitting back and just looking at knowing all these people before they all became accomplished to where they were? I mean, while they were all kind of growing in the field together with you. Yes. Well, these were my colleagues. So um, I, I never gave up my laboratory. Um, when I started in the pharmaceutical industry uh, in the late 70s, all the way through, really, um, all the way through SmithKline, uh, uh, Beecham and GSK, I kept my laboratory. I kept my personal laboratory. I published uh, extensively. And so um, I, I was typically invited to research conferences and to give lectures. So the point of all that is I got to know very, very many people. Uh, they were my colleagues, my some cases my competitors. And uh, we became very good friends. I consider all of my competitors very good friends. Um, even some of the ones that I used to fight with in the literature, we were very good friends and would go out to dinner all the time uh, after meetings when we would have debates at meetings. And so, um, so getting to know them 
uh, was important because that allowed my own personal laboratory while I was in the pharmaceutical industry to collaborate with many laboratories around the world. And that was, um, first off, a great deal of fun um, being at the cutting edge of science. And it's hard, it's easy when you're in the pharmaceutical industry, especially as you become higher and higher in the managerial ranks, to lose contact with the laboratory. And I never wanted to do that. So I kept my laboratory and I kept publishing and um, as well as um, uh, doing the work to discover new drugs in my own laboratory, as well as the laboratories that were uh, managed by the people who reported to me. And I found it a, a very good way to operate. And, and I truly loved every minute of my career, every minute. I'm the luckiest man in the world. And so I knew everybody. I, well, I knew many people. Uh, I knew what they were doing. I was able to collaborate with them. I was able to learn from them. Uh, we would often shift people around in our laboratories. Um, I'd take people from other laboratories. They'd come in and work for a while. I'd send people in mine to theirs. And, and it was a great way to bring in new technologies and stay current. And then did, I did one more thing. In R&D, when I was at GSK and I was there for 17 years, I was worried that I and my executives would become too far away from research as new technologies were basically exploding at the time. So what I did was I made us all, all my, my entire management team, every year take um, several days to a week and we'd go to the NIH and we would have them set up a training course for us in the newest technologies, in molecular biology and ge genomics and, and other omics and so on. And we would go every year and it was a laboratory as well as a lecture-based training thing specifically um, designed for us. The, um, and we would clone our own genes. We would use our own restriction enzymes. We would, and, and that way, my own, myself and my own executives in R&D never got too far away from the science and then also I had publication requirements that I, that I insisted upon for R&D staff, particularly in drug discovery, so that they would have the same benefits that I did uh, when I was coming up through the ranks of, of being at the cutting edge, uh, meeting people um, at the cutting edge, being able to elbow with them, no matter where they were, at conferences. And, and, and I thought that was important. And so um, I tried to ensure the same thing for every person in the R&D group who is managing a laboratory. I think there are, that's fascinating and, and failing to actually refusing to lose touch with the science and keeping up with the technology is something that I think even as parents, we realize we have to do, whether it's just even at the level of keeping up with our kids and their sort of digital native tendencies. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that you have some really unique formative experiences, especially I think around discovering um, dobutamine at, at Lilly. I think there are some stories there if you wouldn't mind sharing. Sure. Well, dobutamine um, it was discovered actually by um, um, a guy who I worked with, uh, Ron Tuttle. Um, and, um, and, and I was the one who discovered the mechanism of action. Uh, it was thought to be a simple beta agonist. But that didn't explain that didn't at all um, explain the inotropic selectivity. 
So um, when I joined Lilly, uh, dobutamine was still in the late stages of, of, um, of discovery and development. And I started working on, um, on that drug just out of my own interest. Nobody had asked me to. I, I, I was interested in the drug. I, I, I always was um, well-versed in stereochemistry. This drug was marketed as a racemic mixture. And it turns out that this drug has a very complex mechanism of action. It is not a simple beta agonist. It has activity at beta-1 receptors, beta-2 receptors, beta-3 receptors, alpha-1 adrenoceptors, alpha-2 adrenoceptors, and all their subtypes. And so of the nine adrenoceptors, this drug acts on eight of them, and all of them are necessary to produce the inotropic selectivity that you see with that drug. It's a complex interplay of the differential effects of the two enantiomers acting at eight different adrenoceptors, eight of the nine. And without them all, the drug wouldn't work. It actually could be dangerous. Um, so the textbooks have a real difficult time explaining how this drug works. Uh, they, they like to say, well, the beta agonist effects of one, one enantiomer does one thing and the alpha effects do another thing and they partially cancel each other out. And that's true, but it's even far more complicated than that. You need both enantiomers and without the racemic mixture acting on all those receptors, it wouldn't work. Sounds like a, a perfect storm. And for a non-biologist, I'm interpreting this as it, it requires a blonde child of the age of five on a rainy Tuesday on the solar equinox to perform a certain task in order for it to work. That's that's my translation into, into the lay perspective. Well, and in fact, um, you have to say there was some luck involved because the molecule was identified um, without knowing its mechanism of action. But um, now knowing its mechanism of action, you can use it safely. Just to give you an example, when this drug is given to increase cardiac output, the pumping activity of the heart, um, blood pressure is maintained. That's important because that's that blood pressure that will force blood into the heart through the coronary arteries to give the heart nutrition. If you had just one of the enantiomers, the one that has the beta agonist activity, the heart would pump well, but blood pressure would go way down, way down. And at a time you're making the heart work harder by pumping more, it would be getting less oxygen and you could precipitate a myocardial infarction or a heart attack. And that has happened when people have given dobutamine with an alpha blocker because they've taken away the alpha effects of the other enantiomer. So that complex mechanism is not just of academic interest, it's also relevant to human safety and how you use that drug with other drugs that can be used commonly in heart failure. I think one of the things in, in working as Arun and I have in bioelectronic medicine and, and the wider field of neuromodulation, um, especially in the early days of neuromodulation, the mechanisms of action weren't a focal point. They, they hit the nail with a hammer, it worked, the, the nail sunk, and the problem was fixed. And so they kind of moved on. And I think that's, um, there's been a resurgence in paying attention to the MOA. And um, it, I, I find it 
very important because we we tend to believe that bioelectronic medicine has little to no side effect. But I'm curious to know what somebody in the in the drug industry would think of that idea and that claim. That's true. In fact, when I joined the pharmaceutical industry in the late 1970s, there were many drugs that we didn't know how they worked. We just knew they worked. Um, and so, uh, but that's very uncommon now. Now you actually primarily focus on the mechanism of action and you design drugs, particularly on its mechanism of action, having already known that that mechanism would be relevant to a biological effect or a pharmacological effect or a pathophysiological effect. But you design it really on the mechanism of action. You focus on the molecular target now. Whereas years ago, we didn't know the molecular target, or if we did, and let's say it was an adrenoceptor, as I've discussed, you'd had to, you had no choice but to study it in an isolated organ bath because there were no ways to label the receptor to, to evaluate it any other way. So nowadays, I, view about I review about 150 uh, new biotech companies a year for uh, an investment banker that I work with, and, um, and uh, almost all of them are mechanism-based, really high-tech. And so all those years that I kept my laboratory and kept learning sciences are paying paying off now as I evaluate uh, these new mechanisms of action um, that were really exploded by genomics. Sorry to break this up, guys. Just wanted to remind you to rate us on your podcast application. That's that's great. But it was also at Lilly where you kind of learned a lot about managing people or watching the successes and the failures of how people managed others. And I think you had always kind of recounted to me uh, and whenever you spoke to the students at the university when you used to come uh, for lectures and stuff uh, about how it was important as scientists um, and still people struggle with it all the time as to how you have to learn uh, by watching, by listening, and more importantly, inventing your own style of leadership in terms of managing scientists, because managing scientists is hard and it's very different once they have passed a PhD and they come to work for you in the industry. Each one has a brain of their own. So I think I just want to pick on that a bit more. Uh, And I think the reason why I'm saying that is because when you moved from Lily, to SmithKline Beecham at the time, and you spoke of the adrenoreceptors, the alpha-1, the alpha-2, beta-1, beta-2, and moving on to your journey to the discovery of carvedilol, um, there was a thought at the time uh, that beta blockers, if discovered or if they were used for heart failure, it could actually kill patients, correct? It would be very, very risky. And I mean, I think it's almost incomprehensible now as to why people would think that, but it's also important for people to understand why that was the the view at that point, Bob, if you don't mind us explaining as to why people thought that. Sure. So a couple of things. Uh, first off, the, the first part of your question <clears throat> uh, about role models, I always encourage people to watch ro- for role models, but not the role models, not only the role models that they think, you should, of course, pay attention to positive role models. And I had several. Dr. Patil was an early one. Ray Fuller, when I was at Lilly, I wanted to be just like Ray. Ray was 
an outstanding scientist, uh, very well known nationally and internationally, discovered a drug, um, Prozac, um, a truly decent human being. And I wanted to be just like Ray. Um, but I also encourage people to pay attention to negative role models. Watch them very carefully. Learn from them too. And what you learn from them is you learn what not to do. And so I always paid attention to very negative role models as well. And, it, and it's good to do both. Don't just focus on people you want to be like, but pay attention to people you don't want to be like. Um, uh, and, and so that's important. Getting to the second part of your question, um, when, um, <clears throat> when we were dealing with uh, Carvedilol, the beta blocker, also far more complicated than simply a beta blocker. In fact, that's why it works. Um, but beta blockers at the time were contraindicated in treating congestive heart failure. That means they were not allowed to be used. And I've taught in the medical schools at Baylor, University of West Virginia, Ohio State, um, McGill. Um, and I used to teach pharmacology there. And I can tell you the one thing medical students remember from their pharmacology uh, lectures, probably the only thing, is never use a beta blocker in congestive heart failure. That's how well known that was. Contraindicated by the FDA, it, they weren't used. And yet you went and discovered a beta blocker for heart failure. But well, this is... The, 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 um, the use of, of heart failure, in the use of, of, of beta blockers in heart failure, and in particular Carvedilol, I, I do hold the patent for that. Um, but we had um, additional data that compelled us to evaluate Carvedilol and congestive heart failure. It wasn't just a beta blocker. It was indeed a very potent um, beta blocker. It was non-selective beta-1 and beta-2 receptors it blocked. But it also was an alpha blocker. And it, in addition, that carbazole moiety imparted on that drug a very powerful antioxidant effect. Not like vitamin C, not like, um, I'm talking very powerful in the nanomolar range. Um, to the level that we haven't really seen before in drugs. And that activity had effect. And based on the studies done in my laboratories and in the laboratories of people who worked uh, for me at the time at, at, at GSK or at SmithKline Beecham, um, we were finding all these additional activities. In addition to the alpha blockade, we found the beta, the, the, excuse me, the beta blockade, we found the alpha blockade, but we found all these other activities such as inhibition of transfection um, uh, factor um, uh, expression. Uh, we found suppression of certain genes, upregulation of other genes, and we found activities that this drug was having that we didn't see with beta blockers. In other words, we were getting profound arterial vasodilation or afterload reduction from the alpha blockade. Beta blockers don't do that. They actually increase afterload. Um, we found inhibition of um, apoptosis in the heart due to inhibition of certain transcription factors um, that turned out to be related to uh, redox reactions, which Carvedilol was inhibiting. We found the drug inhibited lipid peroxidation in heart membranes. 
we found that the drug inhibited um, adhesion molecules um, binding to the heart. And this host of activities all supported the use of this drug in treating congestive heart failure, despite the fact that it was contraindicated. So throughout the development history of carvedilol for heart failure, the drug didn't have very many fans. Um, uh, I, of course, was a big fan. Uh, a person who worked for me, Gior Fierstein, um, uh, John Lee, yay, um, Elliot Olstein. These guys that were part of my group really did the work um, with my laboratory to show these unique activities that we hadn't seen in molecules before um, for heart failure, and certainly not the beta blockers. So, um, but again, everybody knows don't give a beta blocker with heart failure. Yet today, this beta blocker is uh, recommended for first line use. It's a standard of care for heart failure, but still, most of the beta blockers are contraindicated, and most of them have been studied and failed. There are two others that you can use besides carvedilol. You can use um, uh, isoprolol and um, and metoprolol, but at the very high dose. But no other beta blockers worked. In fact, some of them increased mortality um, in patients with heart failure. So in our case, the animal data, the preclinical data, all of that efficacy data that we generated panned out. It worked. We were right. Um, this drug works in heart failure. It produced a marked reduction in death in the clinical trials. And as Arun said earlier, um, uh, the Data Safety Monitoring Board stopped our clinical trials in heart failure patients, the phase three trials, um, um, for ethical reasons, because it was unethical to continue the placebo arm. And the placebo arm wasn't just placebo. The placebo arm was placebo and the standard of care, which was ACE inhibitors, diuretic, and digoxin. The treatment arm was ACE inhibitors, diuretic, digoxin, and carvedilol. So we weren't withholding treatment from these patients. They were getting the best care available at the time in the placebo group, and still it was unethical to maintain that placebo group without giving them carvedilol. So that's what happened. We turned out to be right on that one. I've been wrong plenty of times, but we were right on that one. And um, and now it's the standard of care. And in in that heart failure trial, the reduction in death was 65% at all doses. And at the highest dose, which most people can get to, it was over 90% reduction in death. And heart failure is a disease that has the same death rate as cancer. Half the patients die within five years and there's you progressively get worse. And, there were, and, and so um, this drug had a major impact and it turned out we just got it right listening to the animal data watching the animal data and being directed by the animal data. So I've, I've never heard of the FDA coming in and stopping a trial the way that, that happened with Carvedilol. And this has to have been a pivotal moment for you. Where were you when you got the news about the, the FDA decision? Well, so the FDA didn't stop the trial. It was a data safety monitoring board that the FDA forced us to set up. At that time, there weren't many... Um, clinical trials that had a data safety monitoring board. It's more common now, but it wasn't very common then. So the FDA required us to do this because we were taking a contraindicated drug and studying it in pretty sick patients for whom the drug was contraindicated. So, um, uh, so that data safety monitoring board had the power to stop the study if people were dying 
And they had the power to stop the study if people were not dying, if the drug was saving lives, but nobody thought that was going to happen. And, um, and, and, and recall, this drug had been terminated three times by GSK during its development. And we'd have to go fight to get it back um, uh, placed in development. And I have to give credit to the GSK management. They trusted me and, our, and my group on this one. They did trust us. And we were always re- able to get it restarted again, even though even if it was terminated those three times. And I give them a lot of credit for trusting the scientists. They did. But anyway, um, while the phase three trials were going on, I happened to be in London uh, to answer your question. Um, I used to have to go to London every two weeks uh, for 17 years. Um, and um, I had a bad case of jet lag. And I was I, I got in early afternoon and I went to my hotel room and I slept. I took a nap and the phone rang, a real phone, not a, uh, not a, not a, <laughs> a real phone. And um, and it was my boss, uh, who was George Post, who was uh, president of R and D at uh, at Smith Klein, and he said to me, um, Bob, the clinical trials were for Carvalol were stopped by the Data Safety Monitoring Board, and I immediately said, Oh my God, the drug killed people, just like everybody said it would, and it's my fault. And he said, No, let me finish. He said, oh, gee, I still get emotional when I talk about it. He said, the Data Safety Monitoring Board stopped the clinical trial because of such a marked reduction in death that they considered it to be unethical not to give it to the placebo group. So that's what happened. And, um, you know, you remember the birth of your kids in your life and not necessarily everything else. I remember that one as well as the birth of my kids. That was the birth of a drug. And um, it did what people said it couldn't do. It, it saved lives. It didn't kill people. And so um, just to finish that story, I, I cried for a couple hours because I had uh, 10, 12 years of, of, quite frankly, some pretty significant criticism by by a number of people. I also had supporters too. But um some of the criticism was vicious, vicious. Some of the opinion leaders even refused to take part because they thought it was an unethical clinical trial to study a beta blocker in heart failure. So when I learned that the drug actually worked and saved lives, I just broke down for a couple hours. And then I went out. And I, as I said, I used to go to London twice a, a, a month. I had certain restaurants that I ate and only one hotel that I would stay at. And so everybody knew me at these places. I got drunk. I don't remember much about that evening, and I ended up in my back in my hotel room at some time in the morning. I have no idea how I got there. I think because I ate at certain restaurants, they knew me. They knew where I stayed. The hotel knew me. They got me into my bed. I woke up fully dressed the next morning, uh, not remembering the night before, but I did remember that phone call, and I will never forget that phone call on February 7th, 1995. Um, if you ask me my kids' birthdays right now, I'll have to think. But I remember the date, um, uh, February 7th, 1995. That's when I learned um, that the drug produced such a dramatic reduction in death that it was unethical to maintain the standard of care in the placebo group, which was, again, ACE inhibitors, diuretic, and, and digoxin. That's stunning. And nothing short of stunning, honestly. I mean, you went rogue and you contradicted everything that everybody thought they knew to that point. And then 
you doubled down. You you did so in the face of people telling you, I think I've, I've even heard, if I'm correct, people are saying, Bob, you're going to kill people. Ha, has anybody come back? Has Have any of those naysayers, have they come back and apologized? You know, uh, I, mean, I, I, not, I, I... Not to be magnanimous, but... No, no in fact, um, as I said, uh, probably people might have been fired for doing what I did with Carvey Law. But as I said, the management at SmithKline, not just in R&D, but also the commercial side and the CEO trusted us. And, um, and even though there was great doubt about this drug working, they still trusted us. And when that drug, um, when, when people found out when it was made public, because we had to keep this quiet for a, a, a while, it was price sensitive information and we had to figure out how to manage it. But when it became uh, known um, within the company and then outside the company, the very first person who contacted me was a CEO. He always, we always had a mutual respect. Yan Leshley, his name was. And um, he wrote me a nice letter. The, the head of, um, the U.S. pharmaceuticals division at the time, a person named Jerry Carabellis, who was a good friend of mine, but we had a big fight one day in front of his boss, J.P. Garnier, who was the chief operating officer at the time. Um, and uh, J.P. had to break us up. He thought it was going to end up in, 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 in a fist fight, in which case I would have gotten killed. Jerry's a big guy. But Jerry wrote me a letter. He said, I was one of those doubters, but you were right. And uh, And I've gotten... I got lots of letters from within the company and there is sometimes a certain dynamic that occurs in companies when a drug succeeds, lots of people jump on the bandwagon. I didn't actually have to deal with any of that. Um, the, um, the people in the company knew what group pushed this drug forward. It was, it was my group and, and the people who worked for me and we got the credit. Nobody tried to take credit. Nobody could take credit. Um, because everybody was so opinionated on this drug, most people didn't think it had a chance. So when it worked, nobody really could jump on. And I thought it brought out the best in a lot of people. There are a few people who told me I was going to kill people, and one who made even a worse comparison that I won't mention here, uh, because it was so vile, involving atrocities during a war, and equating me to that, but I won't say what atrocities and what war, um, that didn't say anything, but that's okay. Um, you know, uh, the people who mattered um, all knew what happened. They all understood clearly the development of this drug. It was so visible. I mean, you can't terminate a drug three times, have it come back to life three times, and then turn out to be a standard of care for a serious disease and not have people remember the whole process and the people who experienced it and who mattered um, really um, they were, they were wonderful in how they treated me. But even before that, they still treated me really well the whole time that they thought the drug wouldn't work. And I have to give them a lot of credit. I think in other companies, perhaps maybe, Carvedilol never would have made it to the market. So, um, um, and I also give my wife a lot of credit. Uh, the, 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 what she had to put up with, with three kids, 
me never being home, working all hours of the day and night, it gave me the freedom to do that. And if she had done um, what I'd seen done with some other colleagues who weren't allowed to work nights and weekends and whenever, maybe we wouldn't have had that drug. Um, and then there were also some real heroes on the clinical side, um, Marianne Lucas uh, in our company being one of them. She, while everybody was criticizing Carvedilol, she was the one pushing ahead with the clinical trials within SmithKline. So there were enough, not many, but there were enough supporters that we were able to get this done. And it worked out very well. And I think behind that story of audacity, Bob, I think what always stood out to me was whenever there were people who doubted what the molecule could do, I think the ability and the credibility that you had, because you you had an active lab, you were constantly publishing. So therefore, there was that element of scientific credibility for you within the company as well as outside of it that that made people sit up and listen when you were speaking. And the other one was whenever people actually said it wouldn't work because of X, Y, and Z, you always ensured that you went back with the data uh, to disprove that those hypotheses uh, if those were actually kind of asked for at the time of review at various points. So I think, uh, which is where I think your your elements of kind of saying that people supported me probably comes from, I would hope, because they actually said that this wouldn't work because of X, Y, and Z, and you went back with data and then they accepted that. So you basically had to, there were people who were challenging you. So it wasn't entirely a case of you going rogue, but it was a case of actually a sustained kind of audacious buildup of efforts over time, over many, many years that kind of led to that pivotal moment of of with many, with Mary and Lucas, as you kind of suggested, and, and others who kind of were so pivotal in having those those studies done. Uh, well, it's, it's both. I did go rogue once with the board of directors um, at, at SmithKline. Um, sure, sure. But before I do, before I do, let me explain the other, other part. Um, that you're right. Um, because I, I never gave up my laboratory, I kept um, uh, uh, publishing and, and, and so on. Um, having been in the pharmaceutical industry for so long, I've heard executives in R&D being criticized. Oh, that person's no longer a scientist. That person's never been a scientist. That person never published papers. They, they didn't say that about me. And so I had both um, the luxury of having managerial credibility, but also scientific credibility. They knew I was still a scientist and and still uh, doing the science, and so yeah, that that helped a lot. Uh, I think, in terms of going rogue with the board of directors, um, one of the times Carvedilol was being terminated, um, and I was told this the whole story by the COO J.P. Garnier, uh, who told me what happened ultimately at the board meeting. But um, normally, when the board of directors came in. They would bring them to um, to me to give them a tour of the laboratories to show them, you know, um, what what goes on in the laboratories, how tissues contract, how studies are done, and 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 so on. And um, I was given a heads up by the CEO and by the head of R and D that the next board meeting, the board was going to be told that Carvedilol was being terminated. And um, 
And just before that board meeting, they asked me to do the typical uh, tour with the board of directors and who, who also got to know me and knew me pretty well. But instead of um, doing a tour of the laboratories, I had the, um, the um, audiovisual group stay up all night and create these very nice posters of big diagrams of photographs and, the, and, and showing things that I knew I could explain to the board. And, um, and so the day before the board meeting, they, the director spent the whole day with me, and instead of showing them the laboratories, I showed them these posters, which all highlighted Carvedilol and heart failure. This is where I went rogue. I should have been fired for what I did. I came between the CEO and his board of directors, and I showed them how Carvedilol could take a myocardial infarction and prevent a myocardial infarction that was this big in a heart and make it this big, and they, things that they would see and remember. And the next morning, when they went into the boardroom, Carvedilol wasn't terminated. They didn't even bring it up. And J.P. Garnier, the COO at the time, who must have been very angry, um, and the CEO, I'm sure, was certainly very angry, he called me and he said, look, um, no, I actually he stayed, he came to my laboratory, and I thought I was going to be fired. He said, um, this morning at breakfast, before the board meeting, they were all in there and they were saying the heart attack was this big and then it was this big and they could repeat a lot of what I was saying and they thought, well, this is not a good time to tell them we're terminating the drug and so they didn't. Um, it ultimately was terminated a few months later, but we got it reinstated. But uh, that's when I did go rogue and I think most people would have been fired for that. But again, I had a CEO, J.P. Garnier, I mean, a CEO, Yan Leshley, a COO, J.P. Garnier, and a head of R&D, George Post, who I had credibility with, both scientifically and managerially, and um, whatever thoughts they may have had to, um, uh, to heap retribution on me uh, didn't occur. On the contrary, I got promoted. Uh, um, so, um, so. I have to give, you know, when, when I hear stories about greedy R&D executives uh, where, you know, it's profit over people, I have to tell you, in 50 years in the industry, I haven't seen those kind of people at three different companies. I didn't see pe greedy executives putting profit over patients at Lilly, SmithKline, GSK, or Wyeth. I just never saw it. On the contrary, I saw a commercial people worried sick about drugs potentially hurting people. I just didn't see the stereotype that I heard about my whole career. It's just not what I experienced. There's, there's a car with a bumper sticker in my neighborhood and I walk by it every morning when I walk the dog and it, it drives me crazy. It's, it's uh, I think it's intended toward industries like pharma um, and the, the bumper sticker is people over profits. And I, I really, I get so agitated with that because I don't think you go into an industry like this purely for the money. I think, you know, if you're great and you're successful at it, the money will follow and that's to be rewarded. But I don't know a single person out of my whole network that is motivated more by money than by helping people. I know, I mean, these people are turning down jobs that 
in other right. industries where they make a lot more money for the same type of work, but they're sticking with this industry because they believe in helping people. You're, you're right. So, so um, that that um, that's a really good point. You know, a lot of people think when you go to the pharmaceutical industry, you make lots of money. And some of the biggest disappointments I've seen on people's faces when I've offered them a job, uh, this might be a PhD just off a postdoc, and I tell them the starting salary, and you see a big smile go into a frown um, because they're, um, they've been told by their advisors and everybody they've, they've met with that, oh, you're going to make a lot more money. The starting salary in a pharmaceutical company is not very different than the starting salary for a PhD level scientist in academia. They're within a couple of thousands of dollars. Um, and, um, and so you don't go into R&D in a pharmaceutical company to become rich. And you also don't go into R&D in a pharmaceutical company to hurt people. In fact, you don't go into a pharmaceutical company in any division whether it's R&D, commercial, um, you don't go in to hurt people. You go in to help people. It's a great feeling. You know, I've heard our commercial sales representatives be proud when they can bring a new drug to physicians to improve lives. Some of our sales representatives at SmithKline um, would bring me in with them to meet with physicians. And I could see how proud our salespeople were that their company's the one that made Carvedilol, Coreg. Um, and so um, really, you're, you're right, Jojo. What you said is, is people go into this industry to help people. Drugs that hurt people don't make money. It is true that drugs can hurt people. All drugs have side effects. And I think probably any drug can kill a patient and has killed a patient. What the FDA decides, though, is that this drug has more potential benefits for the population at large than risks. Not there, there are no risks, but there are more benefits than risks. And that's their basis for approval. But I don't see anybody ever make a decision. I haven't seen it. And remember, I've been at all levels from the lowest level in R&D for a PhD to not only the top level in R&D, but the second or third highest level in a pharmaceutical company, including the board of directors. I've never seen anybody make a decision that put profit over patients. I've seen the opposite happen, but I've not seen um, the profit over patients that people assume, or that at least some people assume exists in this industry. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I've not seen it at three companies at all levels. And your 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 career is even just in this in this last hour of discussion, obviously very impressive. And you've had the chance now to retire and you get to take on projects that um, that really speak to you and motivate you personally. What is it that excites you today, both professionally and personally? What is it that, okay. that gets you up in the morning? Okay, well, I told you before, um, I'm the luckiest man in the world. From as far back as I can remember as a kid, I wanted to be a scientist and I wanted to discover a drug that saved millions of lives. And I got to live that dream. How many people get to live their dream when they're from when they're little kids. You're looking at, at at somebody who got to live his dream with a lot of help from a lot of other people. So I loved every minute of my career. Uh, I even the worst days I loved. But when I retired, and it's been about a decade now, 
um, people thought, well, um, gee, what are you going to do now? Uh, I remember the CEO when I told him, I gave him a year and a half notice that I was going to retire. Um, CEO Bob Esner, a great guy, one of the best CEOs I've worked for. And I, I didn't, I've never worked for a bad CEO. Uh, I've only had really good ones. Bob was probably the best. And um, when I told him I was retiring, he says, I'm worried about you. You can't retire. What are you going to do with me? You can't live without this job. That's what he said. Well, actually, it turns out I could live without it. And since I've retired, I've, my time has been divided among th doing three different things. One is um, um, consulting for pharmaceutical companies. I love the pharmaceutical industry. I, I, I truly love it. So I get a great thrill. And I've consulted for al almost all of the big pharmaceutical companies and most of the mid-sized companies. And I'm, I st I'm doing that even now. In fact, this week I'm supposed to be in Germany. But obviously, that's not happening. So um, that's about a third of my time. Another third of my time is spent um, on boards of directors of biotech companies, helping bringing through new innovative products. So I'm still basically working as an R&D person, but at the board level. And I think I'm uh, maybe on about 12 boards now. And that takes about a third of my time. And then the other third of my time is spent doing something I didn't think I would like, but I end up truly enjoying this. And that is um, serving as an expert witness in patent infringement um, cases. Now, patent law doesn't interest me. Writing patents is not interesting to me. But patent litigation is interesting because the stakes are so high, I think. Um, I like representing the patent holders because without patents, this industry um, um, doesn't exist. Uh, we wouldn't be able to recoup our investments in R&D, which are huge. Um, and so I really enjoy this work. And I spent about a third of my time doing that. I think I've done maybe about 20 of those so far. I've got seven going on now. And so I've been staying busy. So I still consider myself the world's luckiest man in that I wake up every day doing what I love to do. I've been paid my entire life to do my hobby. Um, how many people get to say that? Um, so, uh, um, so, so I'm very grateful. If I were to die during this podcast, I would die a happy man. I would die a happy man. One other point, Bob, that we actually wanted to um, talk to you was that, um, especially for your your biggest discovery, which was Carvedilol, uh, among the many others that you did. You actually filed for the patent about for the molecule uh, in '78, uh, and the the receptor was actually cloned in 1984. And there is also a prior history of another beta blocker for angina that Dr. James Black uh, discovered that was also discovered way back before beta receptors was ever cloned. So there is almost this precedence of what pharmacology and physiology and the medicinal chemistry had done before the whole genomic era kind of took off. Uh, whereas now, if you think about how discovery is being done, it, people almost go from the gene to the understanding the whole sequence and people don't even venture out into doing kind of the type of assays that, that were done to discover these molecules. So do you have something to say on that? Because I think there's an interesting kind of comparison and a learning from that. It will be great to actually hear you say um, your viewpoint on that. Yes, um, sure. So, so yes, the uh, 
patent on um, Carvelol was filed for hypertension in in uh, the late 70s, and then the patent uh, for heart failure, which is the one that I hold, was was uh, a little bit after that. Um, but we were able to um, discover Carvelol for heart failure without any of the current technologies that we currently have. Uh, they weren't necessary. They certainly would have been helpful. And as we did more and more research, we would adopt those new technologies as they came on. But of course, all the beta blockers were discovered, most of them were discovered before we even knew what a beta receptor was, before we could label a receptor and before uh, they were isolated. Um, and so, but but these new technologies do help us. So at the time when we were doing the original work on Curvetolol, there was no such thing as high throughput, high throughput screening. And it would take us years sometimes to just identify a lead molecule to then do structure activity relationships around for another three years. Today, because of um, of those advances in technology, like labeling, being able to label receptors and label molecular targets in a um, signal transduction pathway, we can set up high throughput screens. And those are extremely valuable because they shave off many years from our identification of a first lead compound or a chemical hit, let's call it a chemical hit, around which medicinal chemists then can start their structure activity relationships, which still will take a couple of years. But to get the hit molecule, the chemist needs something to work from. To get that lead hit molecule, these new technologies have really revolutionized it. So we're doing it much faster and much more efficiently than ever. But we didn't actually have that luxury back when we started working on Carvedilol. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. It really is revelatory and and um, the insights into the drug industry are something that's new to me and I appreciate um, such such a intriguing stories. Thank you for your time and, and we hope everybody enjoyed listening as much as we did. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bob. Our sound editor is Sayantan Chandran. The soundtrack was Digger by Acidat. You can find their collections on Apple iTunes Store, Google Play Store, Spotify, and many other platforms. This is Arun and Jojo signing off. Okay.